0: Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for um, your Sabbath day, this day that you have set apart, that you have made different to the rest, and we're told that we should expect a greater blessing on the Sabbath than any other day. And so as we open your word this morning, Father, it is our desire to see your character in ways that we haven't seen yet. We thank you for the messages of the scriptures that we've been told have been written that we may learn from them. And Father, we ask that you would do something special this morning. Father, all of us here have sinned against you and against heaven. And Lord, we are not worthy to be called your daughters or your sons. Father, your son, Jesus Christ, will forever be worthy to be called our Savior. And so we ask that he would speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 13. 1 Kings chapter 13. Now, I remember one of the first times that I was reading through the Scriptures. Um, I've been an Adventist for for about eight years now, so it was definitely within my first year. I'm reading through 1 Kings chapter 13, and something happens that just catches me off guard altogether. If you know the story, um, spoiler alert if you don't, but God kills His own prophet. God kills His own prophet. And really, for this message today, I just want to look at why. I just want to look at why does God kill His own prophet? Because the first time I read this, that was deeply troubling to me. Deeply troubling that God would kill His own prophet. So let's, let's read through some of the story to get some context. 1 Kings chapter 13, verse 1. And behold, there came a man of God out of where? Judah, by the word of the Lord, unto Bethel, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. And he cried against the altar in the word of the Lord, and said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord, Behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name, and upon thee shall he offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon thee, and men's bones shall be burnt upon thee. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord hath spoken. Behold, the altar shall be rent, and the ashes that are upon it shall be poured out. And it came to pass, when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, which had cried against the altar in Bethel, that he put forth his hand from the altar, saying, Lay hold on him. And his hand, which he put forth against him, dried up, so that he could not pull it in again to him. The altar also was rent, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign which the man of God hath given by the word of the Lord. And the king answered and said unto the man of God, Entreat now the face of the Lord thy God, and pray for me, that my hand may be restored unto me again. And the man of God begged the Lord, and the king's hand was restored him again, and became as it was before. And then verse 7. And the king said unto the man of God, "Come home with me and refresh thyself, and I will give thee a reward." Now we have the habit of sometimes reading through the scripture and just taking it in and, and reading on and reading on and reading on. But if you were to truly picture this, you'll notice that there's something that that just is rather strange. The man of God shows up, rebukes the king Jeroboam for his his idol worship, and the king you know points at for his soldiers, points at the man of God to, that he may be taken away. His hand just withers away to, to the point where he can't bring it back in. And after the man of God prays that it's restored to him, the king then says, "Okay, great. Do you want to come back to my house for lunch?" Strange, no. Just, I, I, I get that he's grateful. Oh, I've got my hand back. Awesome. But it just seems a little bit what's the word I'm looking for? it's just strange it's not something I would do I'd probably invite him to one of your houses so, so I'm not going to be there just in case something like that happens again but he's like no 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 come back to my house now the response in verse 8 is something, is something that's definitely noteworthy and the man of God said unto the king if thou wilt give me half of thine house what's half his house? he's not talking about chopping it down the middle and they'll have one side each If if you'll give me half of your kingdom, I will not go in with thee, neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. So the the man of God, the prophet, is saying, no matter what you offer me, I'm not going to go back to your house and sit down and eat bread and drink water, which again is a very strange response. Why not? Right? Right? Why are you so against going back to his house and and eating bread and drinking water? I mean, I know it's not the ideal potluck, but but at least at that time, it was pretty decent. And then he tells us why. For so it was charged me by the word of the Lord, saying, Eat no bread, nor drink water, nor turn again by the same way that thou came. So he went another way and returned not by the way that he came to Bethel. So, So the man of God essentially says this. I can't go back to your house. I can't eat with you and I can't drink with you because God told me not to go back the way that I came, not to eat and not to drink. So now, now it's clear why the old prophet, why the man, sorry, why the man of God is saying or doing what he's doing. But the question that I had when I read this is why on earth would God say that in the first place? What's the point? Right? Why would God say to the man of God, I mean, of all commands, I would understand if he said, you know, when you go there, you know, make sure you don't get involved with any of the women there, because, you know, it's kind of the theme of the Old Testament. <laughs> but he doesn't say that. He says, he, says, he says, when you go there, make sure you don't go back the way that you came, and make sure you don't eat any of their food, and make sure you don't drink any of their water. Now, we, have, we know, if you've read the story again, spoiler alert if you haven't, that he does do this, And he's killed because of it. He loses his life. right? And so when I was reading it for the first time, or the first few times, the conclusion that I came to was that God told the man of God not to go back and eat the bread and drink the water to test whether the man of God was truly faithful. That's the conclusion that most come to in in this story. And that's the conclusion that I outrightly reject. That God would just arbitrarily test someone just to see if they're they're really being faithful or not. And and here's here's some of the justification behind that reasoning. It was not a short journey to go from Judah to Bethel. All right? He didn't have a vehicle either by which to make his trip. He He would have had to travel and travel and travel. And he's told, hey, man of God, we don't know his name, man of God, make sure you don't eat, make sure you don't drink. After a long trip, we had a long trip down to, to here um, from Northern California. What's, what's maybe two of the top five things that you'd like to do? Anyone? Eat and maybe drink. Right? After a long journey, if there's anything that you'd want to do, it's refresh yourself. But he's told that's the one thing that he cannot do. My God, this is a a real man. This is a a human being. What, What do you mean he can't eat and he can't drink? It just seems a little bit unfair at first glance. Why did God kill his own prophet? Verse 11. Now there dwelt an old prophet in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. The words which he had spoken to the king, them they told also to their father. So who's their father? He's an old prophet. Now I think that this old prophet, the word old here, it literally does mean that he was, he was, he was old, like he was an elderly man. But I think it, there, there's also the connotation that he was a former prophet. He's an old prophet, but he's a former prophet. How do we know that he might be a former prophet? Well, um, what do you think? How do we know that this prophet isn't faithful? Anyone? Sorry? Great. Someone's read ahead. That's true. That's absolutely true. Well, it doesn't say that he's former. It just says that he's, he's the old prophet. Um, but, but up until this point of the story, let's say that you hadn't read the rest of the story yet, and we're in verse 11, is there any proof there that, we could, that, that might suggest that this prophet is an apostate prophet? Anyone? Yeah, he the king. He in Bethel, so God him to go to. Exactly. If there's a prophet in Bethel already, right? And there's idol worship going on in Bethel, why wouldn't God just call the prophet in Bethel? Right? But you know, he know, he has to go the whole way and call the man of God from Judah to come down when there's, a, when there's apparently a prophet right there. Now, where's his sons? Where are his sons on this day? They're with the king at the false worship service. Now, now, the old prophet doesn't go himself. You know, he's kind of nominal a little bit. Just kind of stays at home, doesn't really need to go to church kind of thing. But his sons go. He's still interested because because, because when the sons come back, he's like, hey, what happened at church today? Well, you know, a man of God showed up. Okay, that's unusual here. Man of God shows up and he preaches against the altar and then they share all, and this is important, they share with the old prophet all the words that the man of God had said. Even I cannot go back with you, nor can I eat or drink in this place. Right, bear that in mind. Verse 12, And their father said unto them, Which way did he go? For his sons had seen what way the man of God went, which came from Judah. And he said unto his sons, Saddle me the donkey. So they saddled him the donkey, and he rode thereon, and went after the man of God, and found him sitting under an oak. And he said unto him, Art thou the man of God that came from Judah? And he said, I am. Now why is the man of God sitting under an oak? He's tired. Why do you think he's tired? Well, it's a long journey. He's just preached a sermon. If, you ever, if you've ever preached a sermon, you'll know that something supernatural happens after where you literally have a bottomless pit that just cannot be filled. That's how hungry you can get. Um, so he's preached this sermon against idolatry. It's no doubt taken a lot out of him. He's traveling back, not even by the way in which he first came, and he finds an oak tree, given the part of the world that this takes place in. He's likely pretty hot, and he just sits down. He's tired. Now, of course, there's an argument to be made that that if he didn't sit down, the old prophet would still have caught up because he's riding on a donkey, and we're not told that the man of God has one. But look what he says. He says, Are you the man that came from Judah? Yes, I am. Then he said unto him, Come home with me and eat bread. Why? Why? Why does everyone want this man to go home with them and eat their bread? Right? And he said, faithful, I may not return with thee, nor go in with thee, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with thee in this place. For it was charged to me by the word of the Lord. Thou shalt eat no bread, nor drink water there, nor turn again to go by the way that thou camest. He's memorized this. Um, likely because he knows that everything that he does depends on this. How successful he is for God depends upon him obeying the word of the Lord. Verse 18 now. He said unto him, "'I am a prophet also, as thou art.' And an angel spoke unto me by the word of the Lord, saying, "'Bring him back with thee into thine house,' That he may eat bread and drink water with him. But he lied unto him. Someone say he lied. No angel spoke to him. Well, maybe some angel spoke to him. It wasn't the angel of the Lord, but maybe some angel spoke to him. He lied. He wasn't honest in that it definitely wasn't the Spirit of God that spoke to him. But notice what happens. It doesn't take much, in fact. Verse 19, so he went back with him. And he did eat bread in his house and drank water. And it came to pass, as they sat at the table, that the word of the Lord came unto who? The old prophet. The word of the Lord came unto who? The old prophet, saying... Thus saith the Lord, forasmuch as thou hast disobeyed the mouth of the Lord, and hast not kept the commandment which the Lord thy God commanded thee, but camest back and hast eaten bread and drunk water in this place, of the which the Lord did say to thee, Eat no bread, and drink no water. Thy carcass shall not come unto the tombs of thy fathers. And it came to pass, after he had eaten bread, and after he had drunk, that he saddled for him the donkey, to wit for the prophet whom he had brought back. And when he was gone, a lion met him by the way and slew him, And his carcass was cast in the way, and the donkey stood by it. The lion also stood by the carcass. And such was the end of the man of God. The tragic tale of the man of God. So why did God kill his own prophet? Well, the obvious answer is... God killed his own prophet because he disobeyed the word of the Lord and went back and ate bread with him and drunk water in his house. But what if, what if there's something else? What if there's another reason? What if there's a deeper reason that removes the fact that we have to impose an arbitrary de- decree by God just for the sake of understanding this passage? What if we've missed something that is vital not just to this story but to our story? Let's go back to chapter 12. The key lies in chapter 12 verse 25. 1 Kings 12:25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in Mount Ephraim, and dwelt therein, and went out from thence, and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam king of Judah. And they shall kill me, and go again to Rehoboam king of Judah. Then he says this. Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold, and said unto them, Is it sorry, said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. And he, made a high, and he made a house of high places, and made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month on the fifteenth day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah. And he offered upon the altar, so did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places, which he had made." So, he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised of his own heart, and ordained a feast unto the children of who? Of Israel. And he offered upon the altar and burnt offering. Sorry, and burnt incense. This right here, I believe, is the key as to why God takes the life of, of the old prophet let's let's go a little bit deeper into what jeroboam is doing jeroboam verse 26 says in his heart what's going to happen now that we're approaching the time of worship is that the people are going to head up to jerusalem to rehoboam's kingdom to to where david would have worshipped and when they go up there they're going to hear messages that are just going to stir their soul so much that they're not going to want to come back down and worship idols so, so let's, let's build something here. Let's make it convenient. He says, let's have one in Bethel and one in Dan. And let's set up two golden calves. And then he just, he just preaches Aaron's sermon. He says, behold the gods which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. It says in Jeroboam verse 32, ordained a feast in the eighth month on the fifteenth day the 8th month and the 15th day. If you know anything about the Jewish feasts, is that there's seven of them in the Jewish calendar year. And they all fall between the first month of the year and the 7th month of the year. Now, if you look at the 7th month, the first month contains Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the the Waving of the Sheaves, the 4th one is Pentecost, right in the middle. And then once you get into the 7th month, In the seventh month on the first day begins the feast of, anyone know? Trumpets. They would blow the trumpets and announce that something important was coming. Anyone know what that is? It was the Day of Atonement. So they'd have ten days of blowing these trumpets to let you know, now is the time to search your heart, see if there's any confessed sin, if there's anything that you have not yet brought to the sanctuary, so that when the high priest goes on the Day of Atonement into the most holy place, he can actually come back out. And the people would receive a clean slate, a new beginning. Now what feast came after the Day of Atonement? The Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was a celebration based on what had just taken part, taken place in the Day of Atonement. They would celebrate that God has forgiven all of their sins, that this new year has begun, and they would do so by, by lying. It's also called the Feast of Booths. They would lie in fields, and they would just look up to the stars, and they would, they would think and talk about the coming of the Messiah. But essentially, the Feast of Tabernacles was a seven-day feast. It was an actual feast. What do you do at feasts? You eat and you drink. Now the Feast of Tabernacles began in the seventh month on the fifteenth day. On what month? The seventh month on the fifteenth day. Now let's read again verse 32. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in what month? In the eighth month on what day? On the fifteenth day on the month, like unto the feast that is in where? in Judah. In other words, they have this kind of fake feast of tabernacles. Now the Jews have seven seven uh, worship services in that year, seven holy days. But what 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 Jeroboam is saying is we only really need to have one. We only need one day That we're going to come together and it's going to be just like the Feast of Tabernacles. We're going to come together and we're going to celebrate all that God has done for us. But the reason why the Jews didn't just have a Feast of Tabernacles is because there was a lot of things that needed to happen before that. As Christians, our life isn't just a celebration of what God has done. We have to acknowledge those things that have happened. Now I'm not arguing that we need to keep feasts, not at all. But the pattern was laid before them so that they could have an understanding of the work of God. Passover was there to tell them of the Lamb of God. Pentecost was there to tell them about what had previously happened and what was going to happen at the resurrection. The Day of Atonement was there to tell them that one day Jesus was going to go into the most holy place. That the sins of the world would be cleansed from the heavenly sanctuary and then he would return and then we celebrate. Right, And then we celebrate. After the work of God has been done, then we celebrate. If you have a feast where the only thing that you're really focused on is celebration, essentially it's similar to the offering of Cain. Cain's offering was a thank you offering. He brought the fruit to say thank you, but he didn't bring the lamb. He's saying, God, thank you, but I don't really need this. I'll bring my own works. I'll celebrate based on what I've done, not on what you've done. And so Jeroboam sets up this feast on the 8th month of the 15th day, like unto the feast that is in Judah. So that the people don't have to go the whole way up to Jerusalem, don't have to go the whole way up to God's land. And he sets up two, one in Bethel and one in Dan. Most of the people would have been near Bethel. But the people were even going as far as Dan. You know why? Because if you offer people a religion that has no element of sacrifice but only one of celebration, the people will flock all over the world. If you tell people that they can have Jesus and they can stay just as they are, they'll go to the furthest worship service if they have to to get that. Convenient, wherever you are, you can come and oh, you can just be blessed. He sets up, here's the key, are you with me still? He sets up a day of worship like God's day of worship. Hold on, I'm going to get some water and let you just think about that. They gave me a brand new water bottle, so I'm going to make use of it. Thank you. Jeroboam set up a worship service like God's worship service. It was a day of worship that imitated God's day of worship, but was just a little bit different. It was just a little bit different, and it was set up, it was set up in such a way that if you wanted to go to God's worship service, you could, and then a little bit later, you could go to Jeroboam's worship service. So they didn't clash, They were very close, but they were just a little bit different. Let's look a little bit closer. He sets up a day of worship like unto the day of the Lord, but slightly different. What else does he do? Well, he sets up idols. He sets up something that they can worship visually. Something that they can see. Something that he can claim, well, salvation actually came from these things also. He then goes on and it says, And he made a house of high places and made priests of the lowest of the people. Now it's not that he got loads of dwarves to be priests. Not that he got tiny people. The lowest of the people that he's talking about are those that were morally the worst. Let's put some of this jigsaw puzzle together. He's afraid that the people will go to God's house and hear the actual word of God. And so he sets up a day of worship that is like God's day of worship, but just a little bit different. And then he goes and makes the priests, the head of such services, the worst kind of people morally. Not the priests that God has ordained himself. And then it says in verse 33 so he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the 15th day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised of his own heart. This was not a command of God. This This was something that he devised of his own heart. Now, who is Jeroboam? What is his title? He is king. What is he doing? What is he doing at the altar? Sacrifices. Does the king do sacrifices? No. The king wasn't meant to do sacrifices. Who was meant to do the sacrifices? The priests. So now we have the full picture. We have a man. We have one single man. And this man is acting as both king... And priest, head of the state, and head of the church. He sets up a day of worship that is very similar to God's day of worship, but just a little bit different. He sets up the churches so that they're convenient and easy to get to. And then he makes it so that those that run such houses of worship are the lowest of the people. Yeah, this is probably just talking about Jeroboam. I mean, I'm reading it and I just, I can't see how it could possibly be alluding to anyone or anything else. It must only be talking about Jeroboam and there's no practical present day application for this verse. None. Can't be. There couldn't possibly be a movement where the head of such is both head of church and state. It couldn't possibly be a movement that devises a day of worship that is like God's day, but just a little bit different. That sets up idols for people to worship and says salvation came from them. That sets up priests in such a place and they're the worst of the people doing things that morally are just unimaginable. There cannot be an application of this, surely. I think Jeroboam here in 1st Kings chapter 12 and 13 typologically is the papacy. Notice that when the man of God comes into the house of worship how does he react? How does Jeroboam react? Seize him. He resorts immediately to violence. But when violence doesn't work, when he sees the hand of God do something, he changes his tactics from violence to friendship. Persecute him! Oh, wait, wait. God is doing something. Let's come together. Oh, it doesn't have to be persecution. We're sorry. It was an accident. We didn't really know what we were doing. But we're in the middle of our feast. We're in the middle of our feast. And so he says, why don't you come home with me to eat and to drink? What do they do during feasts? They eat and they drink. When God says to the man of God, when you go there to rebuke their idol worship, don't go back to their house and don't eat their food and don't drink their drink. Why? Because you're going to stand up there like too many preachers that we've had and rebuke what's going on, but really your heart is there. The people are going to look and they're going to see that the words that come out of your mouth are not matching up with your actions. So, don't go back to their house and don't eat their food and don't drink their drink because it's just going to look like you're one of them. Now, notice this when the state comes to the man of God with persecution, he overcomes. But when the religious power comes, when the religious power comes and claims to have a word from the Lord, the man of God crumbles. It's not the state that gets the man of God, it's the church, it's the old prophets. It's not the state that our eyes need to be on. It's those that come with a seemingly religious guise, but who do not have the power of God. And so he falls. So he falls, and God takes his life. The word of God comes to the old prophet. The former prophet, the apostate prophet. Listen to this. When Jeroboam's offering to his idols, offering sacrifices, God can't speak through the old prophet. But when the man of God falls into apostasy, God needs to say something. And so he uses the one that he can use. Now God can use the old prophet. Why? Because the man of God is even more unfaithful than him. Because the light that he has been given, he has not lived up to. Yes, this man is is an apostate prophet, but you should know better. Now I have to use him to spread my message. Oh, I've given you a message that you haven't been preaching and now I have to use the former prophets. The old ones, the ones that don't have all the light and don't have all the truth. And he loses his life. A supernatural event where a lion comes and tears him to shreds. And the donkey just sits there as an innocent passerby. Why does God kill his own prophet? I'll tell you why. God takes the life of his old prophet because his old prophet preaches this sermon. Listen everyone, it's time for you to know that you need to obey the word of the Lord. Don't fall into these idol worship services. Come, come out of those worship services. You are God's people. This, that's, that's the first half of his sermon. But then the other half of his sermon is this. But, as much as it is, it is super important for you to obey the word of the Lord, if you find yourself in a circumstance where your life is fading away, And where you need to buy food or drink in order to survive. Any light bulbs going off? If you're in a situation where it looks like you're going to lose your life and the word of the Lord is clear. But you really need to buy food or drink lest you perish. Then it's okay in that instance to disobey the word of the Lord. That's his sermon. Complete obedience until it's difficult. Now are we told of a time that is coming to earth on, on, on this very planet I believe round the corner? When we're told that we'll be faced with circumstances in which we cannot buy ourselves and we cannot provide for ourselves. Is that time coming yes or no? This sermon that's being preached is you must obey the Lord and keep all of his commandments and don't worship these idols. But in that time, it is permissible if needed to just obey the word of God a little bit. I mean, to disobey. After all, you're going to go to the house and you're going to be refreshed and then you can just go and preach the message a little bit more, right? God takes the life of the man of profit because, because this is God's sermon. What you do is more important than what you say. The sermon that you are is far more relevant than the one that you preach. And even if you have all of the the truth, and even if you have such a wonderful name like the man of God. Don't think that I'm just going to let things pass by. Don't think that I'm not watching. Don't think that I don't care about these people that you're influencing to be further lost than they even are. First Kings chapter 13 is not about the man of God. It's about the men of God and the women of God that have been called to preach a distinct end-time message. And they're standing up. They're walking to the front of the line, megaphones in hand, but at home. Oh, they're just like the old prophets. Do you know what happens at the end of this story? The Bible, sorry, not the Bible, the man of God is just there laying on the floor. People walk by and see who it is. That's the man of God. They see the lion and the donkey, and they say something supernatural has happened here. And they go to the old prophet, and the old prophet says, Well, he was killed by God. Because the word of the Lord came unto me and said that because you disobeyed the word of God, you will not go to the tombs of your fathers. And then the man of God says this. Hey guys, when you bury him, make sure you bury me with him. So that when the people come by, when his prophecy actually comes to pass, And Josiah comes up and and wastes down all of the high places That when they come across the tomb of the man of God They won't touch it Because he's the man of God And my bones will be in there too When they come to this tomb They'll see that there was really no difference between the two of us Though our theology didn't line up perfectly Really, we were one in the same. I mean, he rides off looking like the old prophet in apostasy on the old prophet's donkey only to be slain by the judgments of God. We've been given a message to preach as a church as a people as men and women of God to go boldly Anywhere God would send us to preach these three angels' message, but not just to preach them, but to live them. The gospel goes to the world as a what? As a sermon? As a witness. They don't need to hear it, they need to see it. And we're preaching, come out of her, my people. Come out of Babylon, come out of Babylon. Come right into Laodicea. Come out of your terrible churches that don't have all the truth and come into our church where it's jam-packed with truth. Woo! But we look just like you guys. We just have a different day of worship. We preach, come out of Babylon like Laodicea is a better place. Now I'm not talking about the the geographical positions. Because we've often preached it like that, right? We've preached the three angels message as if it's a geography lesson. You're in the wrong place. You need to come up and come over here. This is where God wants you to be. Like the whole thing is just about relocation. You're in the wrong church. Come to the right one. And then God will come. But when they come to the right one and they don't see a difference and no one's there to welcome them in and they're not really invited to the potlucks and they're sitting by themselves and someone recognizes that they're new and so doesn't sit next to them and so that the sermons that are preached are using all of this language that they don't understand about sda's and gyc's and buc's and ted's and we've just shown them just how welcoming we are that we care so much about them that we're not at all looking inwardly we're all about the community with our sanctification and justification and glorification and ABCification and all of these things, we're just we're so focused, right, on reaching those that are in Babylon. Come, come, come! Right in to the church that has all the truth in the world. Our seats are warm. We've made it so. We'll build the biggest ones and the nicest churches. We won't have any idols because we know that's what will really attract you. And then we'll tell you all about the benefits of tofu. <laughs> and surely, surely you're just ready to just plunge into the waters. It's not about the geographical position. Daniel was in Babylon. He went to school in Babylon. He worked for Babylon. Like he worked for the government of Babylon. Like he's in charge of Babylon. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar is out there building trees hanging from the sky. Daniel's there actually in charge. He's in Babylon. But when Babylon is torn down, it's as if Daniel was just a nice looking statue in there. Because they built Medo-Persia back up. And he's, he's exactly where they left him. He's fully... In Babylon, but he's so out of Babylon that when it's destroyed, he's not touched because he's not of Babylon. He's in there, but he's not of there. Other sheep, Jesus says, I have that are not of this fold, but they're my sheep. And when they hear my voice, they will know that it's mine. But I'm not coming down to speak to them. I sent you. Imagine this, imagine there's this tall building and this massive fire going, going on in the building and, and, and there's people that are, that are trapped up in the top and you see all these, these brave firemen just, just sprint in and they're running up and there's one that takes the top floor and he's trying to get everyone out and bring them down and get them all out as safely as possible and the last, the last lady, she's, she's leaving, everyone's running, their families outside and then she looks back and she can't see the fireman anymore. She's like, oh no, maybe maybe he got hurt, maybe he got trapped inside and so now she bravely, she runs back in. And she's looking around and she sees sees this grand chair. She's like, no, surely not. And so she walks around to the other side. And lo and behold, there's the fireman sitting down on the chair in the fire. And she says to him, fireman, what are you doing? The building's going to come down. It's on fire. The flames are just engulfing everything. Get out. Come on, let's, let's leave. And he looks at her and says, what are you doing here? No, you shouldn't be here. There's a fire. The building's gonna come down. You need to get out. Get out as fast as you can before it all comes down. And she's like, You're the fireman. If you don't think it's such an emergency to the point where you can sit down, then maybe I can head back inside and get a few more of my things. Because it's obviously not a big, it can't be too big of a deal, fireman, if you're sitting in there having just told me to come out. It can't be too important. If you're telling me that I need to get out, but you're nice and comfortable in the place that I've just left. The gospel goes nowhere if it is not accompanied by influence. The gospel goes nowhere if it is not accompanied by influence. The man of God lost his life, slain by a lion, because his sermon and his life preached two different messages. When the mark of the beast is issued, all it is is this. It's a call to worship. The mark of the beast is a call to worship. And it is played to attract the carnal heart. Every unconverted heart will receive the mark of the beast. Every one of them. Sometimes we think, well, how is it that this religious power is going to get all of the Muslims and all of the Hindus and all of the Catholics and all of the apostate Christians to come together under one? No, no, no. We're already together. If you're unconverted, you're unconverted, regardless of which religion you claim to be a part of. Satan's already there. He already has the heart it says that the heart of the flesh wanders after the flesh, but the heart of the spirit thinks of the spirit. They're already going in opposite directions. When the mark of the beast is called out, when we're told that there'll be no buying or selling, lest we die, when Sunday is enforced as that day, everyone that is, that is not already in line with God, everyone that's not standing by his side, will accept it like this. And all the world wondered after him. Those whose names were not written in the book of life, slain by the, sorry, of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Everyone. And Adventists are not exempt from that. You and I are not safe from that time just because our names are in certain books. Just because we keep up with our Sabbath services and just because we do all these great things, just because we have works upon works upon works upon works, what it comes down to is who has the heart. And even if geographically you're in the right place, but your heart isn't with God, we'll be just like the man of God, preaching faithfully until it gets as difficult as it could get. And then we become just like everyone else. There's only one remedy to this. There's only one remedy to this carnal heart. It's not that it would be changed. It's that it would be destroyed. It's not that it would be altered a little bit. It needs to be completely done away with. It's no good preaching a message that we're not living. Let's be honest. The guilt alone kills us. And so David said, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Don't change it. Don't alter it. Don't fix it up. Just give me one that's brand new. That's nothing like the old one. And so Ezekiel says, Oh, I will take that heart of stone. I'll take it out. And I'll replace it with a heart of flesh. One that can keep my laws, my statutes, and my judgments. Not merely outwardly, but one that sees the law as a delight. One that sees the Sabbath as not a pause in the week, but the pinnacle of the week. One that sees religious activity as not something that we need to do to ensure our salvation, but something that we do because Jesus has ensured our salvation. whole thing is just a matter of the heart. And so God asks this. Tell me what you want. Tell me what you want. Are you content with being a Christian that knows God's word, that preaches God's word, that looks like you're in complete That you're you're following everything that God has to say. But at home, when you're alone and no one's watching, the true character comes out. Because if you're content with that, then you know what I'll do? I'll empower you to preach anyways. And you can go to the false idols and those worship services and those that are in the wrong places. And I'll even do some miracles through you. I'll use you to, to help people. To restore unto them the things that they've lost. I'll use you. But your end. You're not coming in. Oh, but Lord, haven't we done these miraculous things? Haven't we cast out demons? Haven't we healed people in the name of Jesus? Yeah, but who are you again? Now you can't come in here. This is invitation only, and I don't know you. Because though you had all the works, and all the sermons, and all the Bible studies, and all of the cool services, you never gave me your heart. You never, you said you did. You sung I Surrender All, but you never really gave me your heart. And so today is simple. One question Do you want to be a Christian? Do you actually want to be a Christian? Christianity is not meant to be a mask, a guise, a little Sabbath, good feeling. It's meant to be a drastic change of life, completely against the current. Do you want to be a Christian? Do you really want to follow Christ? Father in heaven, help us to be a Christian in the only place that it really matters, which is in our heart. Our hearts, Lord, which are desperately wicked and deceitful above all things, so much to the point that we can't even know them. Father, we ask that you would change them. Even if we have feelings of apathy and complacency and we think that we don't really need that change, that this message was for someone else. Lord, change our hearts. Give us not just a message to preach, but a life to live. That your glory, that your character may be seen on this earth in a way that it has never been seen before, Lord. Father, we want to go home to leave this world of sin and dread behind. And we know that that will take place when this gospel goes to the entire world as a witness. Lord, help us to be that witness, to fulfill the mission that you've given to our church. Be with us today, Lord be with our conversations, be with all that we do, that we may not just stay in your presence for this day, but for every day until you come again. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse,